events of the past 12 months have once again highlighted that Australia still has a long way to go when it comes to our relationship with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. 20 years on from the reconciliation march of 2000, the path to reconciliation is still one that as a nation, we have a long way to travel. In that spirit of reconciliation, I would like to offer my respects to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, both past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders who might be listening. So welcome everyone. I am joined here today by author, designer, co-design coach, Kellyanne McKercher. Kellyanne, thank you for joining us. It's lovely to be with you. Thank you for having me, Steve. Now, Kellyanne, just for everyone, whereabouts are you located today? I know you can be a little trans-Tasman in your travels. Where, where, do we, where do we have you today? Yeah, so coming to you from the unceded lands of the Wangal and Gadigal people um, in what's now thought of as Inner West Sydney, um, but originally coming from and heart very much on Takahu Maunga land in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Lovely. So the Inner West uh, is where I also live. Uh, it's a beautiful day today. Um, we, we're very fortunate to have some... Um, clear blue skies uh, in Sydney today. So that's lovely. Now, we've got you here to talk about a range of things, but I just, let me, let me start with a broad question and, and we'll take it from there. So we have a, an opportunity in society at the moment for us to rethink the way that we engage with organizations with people um, in the way that we design not only things but also society itself what do you what do you see as our challenge um, some of the challenges that we face as we go about that process of taking up that opportunity mm -hmm. I guess the first thing I'd say is I think it's always been the time. <laughs> I think it is the time now, but it's always been the time. Yep. Um, look, I think when we take up that challenge, particularly as designers, we have to be really careful about whether the ways that we're working indeed are power sharing and indeed are part of the ultimate change that we want to see or might actually be undermining um, I guess, a culture of sharing much more power, responsibility and contribution uh, with each other. And I guess what I mean by that is some of our particularly commercial design tools tend to retain power with designers, with design teams, with professionals, and tend not to really start to uh, engage with the contributions and the expertise that people, families, communities have um, and have always had, yet we've not been particularly good at seeing them, I guess, as partners, not just as passive participants. Um, so there's something to be said, 
I think about the types of tools that we use and the types of mindsets that underpin those tools. Um, and there's plenty of designers that I think are stretching themselves into mindsets that are fundamentally, fundamentally about elevating the lived experience and the, the contribution of lived experience. And at the same time, there's a number of design tools that also undermine that. Um, so I think a sensibility about which we're using what and why and for what purpose and who we are in relationship to our work is really critical. There's no best time during the design process to engage with non-designers, right? Like it's, it's a, it's a good thing to be doing no matter which part of the design process that we're talking about. Yeah, and look, I, th I don't find very helpful the distinction between a designer and a non-designer. Mm, yeah. <laughs> I think that um, there are designerly ways of being and doing and skill sets and mindsets and design often does not just sort of happen. It needs to be sort of held and facilitated and stimulated in some sense. But I think certainly if we start off... Um, uh, I guess wanting to answer a question first and foremost, which is usually where the design process starts. I mean, that is the perfect place to be in and with community and people and families to be co-planning what it is we're going to do. And then I think there's sort of other opportunities, particularly in the kind of research space that we don't think about learning things for people or from people, but learning together. Similarly, when we move into the prototyping side of things, Again, that designers aren't learning for people about what works, but we're also learning together and using more kind of peer-to-peer -peer and community-led strategies, I guess, to do that. Are there, are there other sort of um, academic or intellectual traditions that do that well? Yeah, there's a few. I mean, I guess sort of a participatory action research type approach sort of might do that fairly well. I think that there's a little bit of a challenge in anything that sits in an academic space being really good at sharing yep. power. Yep. My view is that we find more of those patterns and ways of being in kind of citizen movements and community yeah, organizing. Okay. Yep. Um, and also as a, as an outsider to indigenous knowledges, there are many indigenous knowledges that would probably also offer us um, different ways of being alongside each other of working together mm. um, I think by their very nature institutions can sort of undermine or destroy the fabric of people working together which is something that we've probably always had but mm. has been damaged somewhat by the strength of I guess service producing institutions but also mm. the strength perhaps sometimes of designers being sort of too forceful um, in what they're doing well we we end up with these sort of institutionalized uh, hierarchies of power um, that are hard to shed when we go out into the world. Um, and that very act of thinking about it as going out into the world rather than being in the world all the time is in itself um, something that we need to overcome. Mm. Mm, it is. And I think the other one, you know, and a question to ask ourselves as designers is sort of where is my place to stand and what is the type of content that I want to work in and around that might intersect with my identity or my lived experience? Yeah, okay. Um, and I think that might go a little ways to addressing this kind of saviour 
thing that we have a bit of a push of, particularly in the kind of commercial interpretation of social impact design, which suggests that we go out and fix people as if they were sort of broken or as if we were the ones that should do the fixing, um, as opposed to asking ourselves, you know, is there something about my life identity experience that is kind of, um, would also be liberating for me to engage alongside Mm. as opposed to, um, kind of swooping in and out as an expert. Yeah. I mean, the, the downside to that, um, or the bad version of that, I guess, is the sort of thing we see in Silicon Valley quite a lot. Um, people designing for themselves um, from a very uh, privileged position to begin with and then, you know, designing for, for, to solve their problems um, and, and really sort of... Uh, taking resources away or concentrating resources into the solution of problems that, you know, really don't crack the top 10 um, that we need to be dealing with uh, in in, in the world. Yeah. And I think particularly when I sort of talk about the lived experience side of things, I am talking about sort of social justice issues as opposed to um, my Uber Eats takes too long and my food gets cold (laughs) (laughs) or like something like this. But I guess in a... In a co-design process, we are inherently um, malleable to each other. So we've sort of all got something to teach and something to learn. Mm. So even when we have a lived experience, there's some kind of softness around that, which also encourages and allows me, I guess, to engage with whatever your lived experience is as well. Um, But that is definitely a dark side. And it's, it's, Mm. it's possibly an issue too about this problem framing. So, you know, in commercial design, we focus on problem framing as the kind of start of a design process. In a social design context, I don't think problem framing kind of belongs as comfortably because it tends to send this message of like a particular group of people are the problem and we sort of need to address this problem that's people as opposed to sort of starting in dignity or strength or resilience or joy, um, which tend to be more exciting as a place to start design rather than being told that you're a problem that needs fixing for government for private business for family for community yeah and that's a that's a um a significant shift in perspective um do you have advice for people to help them down that path of of shifting the way they they frame those things in the first place Mm, i mean i think there's a couple of kind of Um, academical conceptual frameworks that can be helpful Um, one would certainly be strengths-based practice or asset-based community development Um, I think there's also some good stuff in recovery orientated practice as well as trauma informed practice and I think we can almost you know I think designers are very good at seeing the unseen connections between things and joining things together Mm -hmm. there's certainly some some social theory that I think we can borrow on but I mean, honestly, I don't think anything beats just being with a group of people who are often designed at and yeah. listening to how they think and feel and want to talk about themselves. Mm. You mentioned uh, early the uh, question around sort of commercial design. Um, I don't think commercial design often provides, uh, or that commercial design practice um, often provides practitioners with the kind of time that it can take to just sit in that space 
um, and to be uh, respectful and listen and um, see um, in the way that it requires. Mm. Oh, absolutely. And I, I don't want to demonize commercial design either because I have been mm. at times a commercial designer and felt incredibly frustrated by the constraints of a process that is expected to be fast and transactional. Yes. Um, I think, however, if we are commissioning design or we're um, being commissioned to provide design, there is a little bit of a responsibility to flag where a lack of relationship and investment in relationship may actually be quite damaging to the folks in the project and to the eventual outcome of that project. It's not to say we can always convince people about yeah. the importance of relationships. I think that's changed a little bit, but we've still got a long way to go in building that into design practice or seeing it as a, a fundamental part, not an optional extra. Yes. I was uh, talking with someone recently um, and they were um, recounting for me um, a, a paper that they had been reading and I'll, I'll have to dig up for, for the listeners um, where that paper was, was authored. But it was talking about models of uh, innovation um, and where ideas come from. Um, and this sort of, uh, you know, we, we treat... It's particularly in the uh, in the commercial design space, but also you know uh, even more so in the areas that are typically labelled as design thinking, um, we we treat them like a um, you know a, a farming type process where you know like you you prepare the ground and you sow the seeds and then you you know like and and on a on a fairly sort of set timeline with the right amount of sort of nutrients and water along the way and in the appropriate spots you end up with innovation um, and it's it's a it's a process with a sort of clear output and uh, this person was sort of talking about the idea that it, it innovation in the way that we need it and in the way that is more respectful um, needs to be thought of more like a natural ecosystem and it's not the kind of thing that you control it's the kind of thing that you uh, allow space to happen that you allow time to to grow you allow the um, the interactions that take place um, in their own time mm. um, and and what comes from that is quite a vibrant ecosystem where those ideas will be there, um, but they'll be much more natural and I think you know, sort of much more contextual to the participants in that system rather than yeah. this sort of synthetic or, um, you know, uh, almost manufactured uh, type environment. Yeah, and I wonder if, you know, some of the how linear commercial design methods are and how easy it is to make them appear simple is really just fooling ourselves into thinking that things can ever be delivered in that way because um, it's easier to sell that and it's easier to buy that. Um, just yesterday, um, a friend of mine, Emma Blomkamp, and I are running a community of practice called the Co-Design Club. Um, and this is a, a community of sort of experienced participatory design practitioners who want to come together, have conversations with each other about how to keep pushing the edge of that practice. Yep. And one of them, um, Tara Moala, who lives in Auckland, uh, was talking about her analogy of co-design and design as a 
as the ocean and as waves and that sort of things are sometimes kind of bubbling up um, and you can kind of spot them and see them. And then other times they are completely consumed by some other wave that crashes over them. Mm. And what sort of ends up washing off onto the beach is a kind of froth of a whole bunch of different stuff. And I sort of, it's, it's been really exciting to see some of our language change and design over the last couple of years to things that are, as you point out, more kind of nature-based and more kind of interdependent, like a, you know, um, network of fungus or something where you've got, you know, a very different relationship. Um, I think all of that, though, is pointing us towards thinking about design in a way that is far less linear, um, far less binary, and far less easy to control. Um, And why would we want to control it anyway? Well because control feels safer, right? I mean, it's, uh, it's one of the things that I, I wanted to touch on is that there is, there is this notion of power in design and it's very clearly a power dynamic uh, at, at play, but there's also this notion of control um, and to really sort of go down this path uh, and, and to practice design in the way that you're talking about really does require um, the, the, the designer with the, capital D, uh, to, to relinquish some of the control that they may not feel comfortable um, doing yeah. so. And it is an uncomfortable uh, moment. It is. And look, one of the frameworks in Beyond Sticky Notes is this idea around exercising power and partnership. Um, so it's not to say that we give up something of ourselves altogether, but that when we decide decision-making sort of being one of the key ways that power is enacted, that those are our co-decisions as opposed to decisions that we just take on ourselves. I think that there is probably a process to go through where we see that actually sharing power creates much better outcomes than holding on to it and where it actually becomes the more desirable thing to do. One for like our cognitive load, because I, I really don't know if it serves us holding on to having to control everything. And then secondly, you know, everyone has some kind of unique contribution to make, right? And often in design studios, I'm not sure that design studios are the most diverse places to be currently in Australia. Um, So there is kind of a, a plethora of experiences that we can tap into Um, particularly if we tap into them as relationships, not as transactional participant interviews, for example, Mm -hmm. which there's often, it it can feel a bit kind of contrived and stifled rather than, you know, sitting down and having a meal together. Those, I mean, those models of engagement uh, and the ways in which we interact with others um, are definitely not the ones that are uh, well suited to business environments. Um, you, you mentioned that idea of, you know, being able to sell um, and buy design services. Uh, and typically that is, you know, sort of more geared towards um, certainty, certainty of uh, output, but also certainty of process uh, and approach. I think that's one of the real challenges that we have um, as as a design community. If we really do want to go, um, and I think you know, I I don't think it's um, 
an issue in the community necessarily that we aren't looking for authentic ways um, to design things that are better for the people who are going to be on the receiving end or you know engaging with those things whatever they they might be i think generally um, the design community tends to be filled of people whose hearts are in the right places um, but that's still not necessarily helpful um, so you know like you you can be well-meaning and 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 unhelpful like in uh, due to the way that you go about things yeah and i guess one of the other frameworks in the book is is like a set of of prompts for ourselves and the first set of prompts is is co-design or design needed right. and will it sort of increase dignity or will it be disempowering and unhelpful and burdensome yep. mm -hmm. um, what is already happening is this really the time and what has already happened and what do we already know yep. um, and then I guess the second part is if design is needed am I the person who needs to lead it and I think that sometimes we don't get to make these decisions because we're inside of an institutional agency where we're expected to do a certain piece of work. Yep. But where we do have that agency to stop for long enough to sort of think about who would I be in relationship to the people that I'm trying to work with? Yeah. And might it be that I have such significant blind spots when it comes to my white privilege, for example, um, that the ways I'm working, I might be kind of walking through the dark. And if I'm walking through the dark, <laughs> that's yep. not a real good place to be trying to lead the process from. Yes, yes. Um, uh, we've, we've certainly, um, you know, at Melt Studios, we've certainly turned down bits of work that we've been approached for where we felt that we weren't the appropriate group to be leading them. Um, you know, made connections with groups that we felt were more appropriate for whatever uh, the reason was. Um, we felt that was going to lead to a more authentic outcome and, a, and an overall better outcome. Um, but also, you know, given the community uh, and the, 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 the groups involved, having um, having us, having people like me, um, go into to lead that process would have sent entirely the wrong message right from the outset um yeah, yeah. i mean there really are times um and those times are increasingly obvious um but there really are times when you know middle-aged white guys need to uh shut up and stay out of it rather than um walking into it um yeah. you know always 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 with the best of intention um but, as yeah. I say, in, 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 in uh, quite unhelpful ways. Yeah, and look at a really awkward lesson that I learned very early on in my career was just because you've been commissioned by a state or federal agency doesn't mean that you are wanted, invited, and commissioned by a community. Yes. And I think that we almost have to do this double process of seeking permission and authorizing which is to say you know it's yeah. all very well that you've asked us to be here yeah. but you know does this community really want us to be here and if so what is the kind of relationship that we need to establish who are the community connectors that are already in this place yeah. who do we want to walk alongside of to kind of build up our legitimacy yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. it's showing up to say you know 
are there ways that we can support you to have more impact in the things that you're already doing? And I think through COVID, we've even seen a few examples of where communities' capacity to produce their own um, structures of support and care have well exceeded <laughs> the, the strategies of supporting care that we might be able to offer as services or institutions. Yeah. And then there's this growing body of work which is also about, I guess, divesting entirely into a group of people with lived experience to sort of say, what is it that you already know and what is it that you're already doing as kind of community connectors that we could be better supporting? Which is quite a different sort of question than going out and saying, we want to make a new service. What's your feedback? Yes. And I in the past, we've seen that sort of model of, in, in, in many cases, we've seen that model of empowering communities, simply meaning we'll, we'll provide money. We'll, we'll provide money, but without actually providing any of the, the infrastructure or skills or the support that they might need to go through the process that you've just been talking about, which is, okay, fine, we'll give you the financial resources, but we can also help you with the actual um, uh, skills and capabilities to help draw out the skills and capabilities of the community and the will of the community and the, the desires that you have and the ambitions that you have for yourselves. Um, yeah. and, I, and I think there's also a bridge that's often missing. So when we have sort of place-based design work mm. and we have a particular community who are saying, you know, these are the things that we can do already for ourselves. And here are the structural barriers that we're experiencing, be it across justice mm-hmm. or education or health, whatever. Mm-hmm. I think there's a really important role to play that's kind of like a knitting role that knits those kind of place-based aspirations mm-hmm. and burdens and barriers into a state or federal context to then yep. say, well, how do we respond with some of the instruments and mechanics that we have available to us um, but I think that's sometimes missing it does it doesn't work it doesn't work fast enough um, I, I've really enjoyed recently reading John McKnight's Keyless Society I don't know if you've read it before I've not yet no it's um I think 1995 it was written but feels okay. like kind of an idea that's really having its time now and in it John McKnight argues that that actually through having such strong service-based responses that we have fundamentally weakened the capacity of communities to care for one another. Interesting. And he provides this example of a community that had no such thing as grief or bereavement counselling and where, you know, every time someone passed in community, you'd come round to my house with a casserole, you know, you'd say, how are you doing? Can I sit mm-hmm. with you? And then at the introduction of grief counsellors, people started in this community to feel uncomfortable of, well, I don't want to interrupt the grief counsellor's work because they're the person that's expert in this. And then because they knew they were paying for it out of their taxes, they also started to think, oh, but it would be bad if we didn't access it. So we we better start doing that. And slowly over time, the kind of the weakening of such dominant, service system meant that people's actually just like very human capacity to care for one another was kind of damaged. Um, So I think there's also something to be said in, and this is uncomfortable as a service designer, you know, sitting kind of in my head of, you know, have I really been contributing to the weakening of our capacity to care for each other or, or do I contribute to the strengthening? And if I'm not doing services, 
then what is it that I'm contributing to? Sure. That's a great question. That's a great point to end our conversation, Kellyanne. Thank you so much. Um, there will be uh, a, a link to where people can find your book um, if they're interested in, in learning more about the sorts of things that we've been talking about and some of the frameworks that you've, uh, you've mentioned. But thank you very much for joining me. You're most welcome, Steve. Lovely to chat.